Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. You know, when a well-known figure, a public figure, has a fall from grace, there's always the public side that everybody knows about, uh, the who, what, when, where, and how. But we always wonder what's going on inside that person privately, like what's really happening inside them while their whole world is blowing up. Psalm 51 is one of only 13 psalms that have an explicit historical context named for us. In other words, there are only 13 psalms that reveal for us what the story behind the song was, what was going on when it was written. And this is one of them. And the header notes tell us that this particular psalm was written by David after the prophet Nathan confronted him to convict him of the sin he had committed of adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. It was in the aftermath of that confrontation that David wrote this word, this the song, and it really does a good job of expressing what he was feeling inside and offers for us some really good guidance on what sincere and genuine repentance looks like. Second uh, Samuel eleven two to four succinctly summarizes this familiar story for us. Let's take a look at that passage. Second Samuel eleven two to four. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. David gave in to his lust, and he used all the royal powers and authority at his disposal to act on that lust. Bathsheba had literally no say in the matter. He was the king, and uh, he summoned her, and she had to go. This wasn't just any woman. She happened to be married to a man named Uriah, who was one of David's most loyal friends and soldiers. There was a small group of the mightiest soldiers, the most faithful ones who surrounded David in his inner circle, and Uriah was a member of that group. And so when Bathsheba became pregnant, David panicked, and in order to try to cover his tracks, he recalled Uriah from the battlefield and was hoping that Uriah would go home and lay with his wife and would come to believe that the child that that was going to be born was his own. But Uriah was such an honorable man that he refused to take the comforts of his own home and his bed when his brothers-in-arms were out in the battlefield struggling. And so, David recalled him back, sent him back to the battlefront and arranged for him to be murdered on the battlefield in order to cover his own sin. When Nathan confronted David, David finally saw what he'd done. And this poem, this psalm, is what he wrote in response to that. So what do we learn from David's repentance that can be applied to our own spiritual journey, our own repentance. First thing we learn is that repentance means turning towards God rather than away from Him. You know, the natural instinct 
when we know that we've done something wrong to someone, is to hide from them or to avoid them as much as we can. It might be because we are genuinely ashamed of ourselves and can't face them, or maybe we're afraid of retaliation or of rejection, and that's a natural instinct. But what we see David doing in his conviction is not turning away from God, but turning directly towards God. Look at what verse 1 says. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You can't help but notice the attitude, the posture that David has as he opens up this song of repentance. David didn't just turn to God having hardened his heart. There was no, uh, let's just get this over with kind of attitude. But there was a softness, a humility or vulnerability. There's always that. Whenever we ask someone for mercy, we're admitting that we have no power, that all the power is in the other person's hands. It is the ultimate statement of humility and vulnerability to say to another person, please have mercy on me. You know, making ourselves vulnerable in the presence of someone else is one of the hardest things that we can do. So how was it that David was so able to approach God in the midst of knowing what a bad thing he'd done? How could he approach God with such a vulnerable spirit of openness? Well, David reveals to us that it's because he was appealing to the steadfast love of God. That simple phrase, steadfast love, translates what is perhaps the most rich word in the Bible, in the original Hebrew. It's a word pronounced chesed. This chesed love of God is a kind of divine love which many translators have tried to capture, but for all their efforts, they just haven't been very successful in capturing the richness, the bigness of this word, the love of God. In preparation for this sermon, I read a book. Can you believe that um, an entire book was written about this single word, chesed? And the book I read was written by a guy named Michael Card. Maybe some of you old school folks remember Michael Card as a Christian recording artist from the 80s. Um, He wrote a book called Inexpressible, and it was the fruit of a 10-year deep dive study of this single word or concept of the chesed, love of God. And in that book, he offers us the following working definition of chesed love. It's when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. Did you catch that? It's safe for us to be vulnerable before God because of his chesed love for us. And how do we know that this is what the love of God is like? How do we know that His love is unconditional and unfailing, everlasting, steadfast, kind? How do we know this about Him? Well, it's not an observation we make about Him from outside. It's the way He described Himself. Look at the words of Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the personal name of God, a God merciful, and gracious. And listen to how God describes Himself. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The reason David was so confident to approach God 
with such openness and vulnerability was because he knew that God would meet him with this kind of love. By the way, did you catch that one of the ways, or I'm sorry, one of the signs of this divine hesed love of God, one of the measures of godly love is not being easily angered, being slow to anger. That doesn't mean there is no capacity for anger. We do see that God does get angry in Scripture, but it takes a while for Him to get there. It doesn't describe His core character. He is not, unlike many people's common conceptions of Him, He's not an angry God just looking for a chance to be angry. That better describes most of us. We love to get angry at things, don't we? We love a good outrage. But God describes Himself very differently from that. If He is angry, it took a while for Him to get there. It must have taken something sufficient to make Him that angry because His basic character is that He is abounding in love and slow to get angry. If you find that you're a person who's easily angered or easily triggered, it could be an indication that the love that you have is very often a conditional love. It's lavished on the deserving, but totally cut off from the undeserving. And that usually will mean that you are an unsafe person for others to be imperfect or vulnerable around. But take heart that as we experience the chesed love of God, we can also grow in practicing and having the hesed love of God towards others. So one of the things that true repentance is marked by is a turning towards God rather than away from Him. That's against our natural instinct, but it's one of the things we learn from David's repentance. Here's a second thing we learn about true repentance. It means confessing or owning our sin. Look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. You know, when we've really done something wrong, we don't need other people to point it out to us. We know what we've done. In fact, one of the reasons it's so annoying for people reminding us is is that we already know how bad we are and what a thing we've done. David had no illusions about what he'd done, but this self-awareness, this realization did not come easily for him. Immediately after he committed this sin, David entered damage control mode. He used all his focus and all his energy and resources to try to contain the problem he just created for himself and for other people. And so because of that, he was distracted. He he would not allow himself to reflect on what he did because he was so busy controlling and managing the situation. And eventually, his heart became numb to what he'd done. It's like he lost sight of just how horrible a thing that he'd done. So when Nathan confronted David, he knew already that David didn't see the horror of his actions. And so he he confronted David in the most clever way. He used a fictitious story, and he told David the story um, of a rich man who had a dinner guest, and instead of slaughtering one of his many sheep in his many flocks, He went over to his poor neighbor and took the one sheep that this poor neighbor held so dearly. He treasured this little sheep like a member of his family. And he took it from this poor neighbor and prepared a meal for his guest. Well, 2 Samuel 12, 5 records for us that when David heard this story, 
he was, he was filled with rage. It says David burned with anger against the man in this story. Isn't it funny how sometimes we have to see our clothes on other people to realize just how ugly they are? You know, one of the funny things about this moment is that David had heard a story that perfectly described what he'd done, and he couldn't see it. He couldn't locate himself in that story. So then Nathan springs the trap and says, David, you are that man. David had just pronounced a death sentence on the man in the story, that under my watch, while I'm king, anyone in my realm who does something like that should be put to death. And he had just condemned himself because he then immediately realized that Nathan was right. He didn't just cop to it. He really saw in that moment the horror of what he'd done. I think that's essential to true repentance. It's not just grudgingly saying, fine, fine, yes, I did it, okay? Are you happy? That's the way a lot of us repent. It's fine, we're backed into a corner. I'll admit what I did. That is not the spirit of true repentance. It is actually seeing what we've done. Now take a look at verse 16 because there's another dimension to this. Verse 16 says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. When we're finally cornered and we realize what we've done, a common response, an instinct of ours, is to do something to make it right. But in spite of our instinct to give something, to give some grand gesture, to make some sacrifice, to try to even the score, that's really not what's most important in repentance. In verse 16, what David says is God is not looking in a moment like that for us to grovel at his feet and bring him some lavish sacrifice or do some grand gesture to prove our devotion. All he really wants and all we ever want, right? And when someone does something wrong against you or me, what do we really want? Do we want restitution? Do we want money to make it right? What we really want is just a sincere admission of wrongdoing. We just want the other person to truly recognize what they did and what effect it had on us. That's all we want. No amount of money or grand gesture or sacrifice can substitute for that simple, humble admission that they know what they did. Notice something else in verse 4. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David speaks those words to God, not to Bathsheba, not to Uriah, not to the baby who is condemned after this sin, but to God. And I could just picture Uriah and Bathsheba kind of going, uh, no, you, you kind of sin against us too. And he did. His words don't diminish the fact that he really hurt some other people. But what he's saying is this that his greatest violation wasn't against other people first, but it was against God. You see, before we trample on the rights of our fellow human beings, we first have to trample on the authority of God over us. If we don't even respect the authority of God, we will most certainly not care what damage we cause in the lives of other people. Sin is always a violation of God first before it is ever a violation of other people. 
And so David doesn't just confess to the people he's wronged, but rightly so, he confesses to God. Now, I've got four kids, and I know that when one of my kids hits one of their siblings, they haven't just violated their brother or sister, they violated me and Jeannie. We are the parents whose authority sets the rules in that house, and they know they've been raised better and that we have told them that is not appropriate behavior. And so even though their direct sin is against a sibling, it is also against us. And in fact, before they hit their brother or sister, they have to make little of our authority and our love for them. So true repentance owns, it confesses the sin that we've committed we learn something else about true repentance from David's repentance. That true repentance means asking for cleansing. Asking for cleansing. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then skipping ahead to verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Throughout David's song of repentance, and this is really like a a poem or a prayer, he makes these repeated pleas to God to wash him or cleanse him or purify him. His request to be purged with hyssop is especially interesting because hyssop was a plant that grew wild and people would, the priests would gather bunches of hyssop and tie them together almost like a broom or something. And they would dip it in blood and sprinkle that blood, that sacrificial blood, on the house, on any house that had been infected by a disease in order to purify it. Now, I think that's a pretty powerful and relevant image considering the times we're living through right now. Imagine that just before the stay-at-home order had come in, that somebody had come to your house to do some work, some contractor or something, and you found out a few days later, that that person who had been all over your house doing work had tested positive for coronavirus. What would you feel in that moment? What would you feel? I know you couldn't see the virus, but wouldn't you just feel the virus everywhere in your home? It would feel like a really unsafe place. You would see it everywhere in your mind's eye. And your instinct would be to scrub and disinfect every surface of your house. You'd probably um, tell everybody to freeze where they were and you would grab the wipes and you would just rush from every place. You'd scrub down every surface that you could. But do you know that it's only the powerful disinfectant solution on that wipe that makes your efforts effective? Without that solvent, that solution, all the wiping would still be ineffective. No matter what you tried, you'd just be spreading the disease even further around your house. The the solution, the cleansing agent, makes all the difference. It's not the action of scrubbing away. 1 John 1.7 makes it very clear for us that the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. You know, there's a difference between saying that we're sorry and asking for forgiveness. I think saying that we're sorry keeps the the power on our side of things. I will decide to tell you how I feel. But asking for forgiveness transfers the power to the other. 
1 John 1.7 reminds us that what washes away our sin is the blood of Jesus. We're not cleansed because we unburden ourselves. We're not cleansed because we got it off our chest or admitted what we've done. That's important, but that's not what cleanses us. We're cleansed because Jesus took the punishment that should have been ours for what we just confessed. Confession shouldn't just stand on its own. When I read how readily God released David from his horrible sin of adultery and murder, it's outrageous to me. It feels like something's wrong with the world when a man can get away with that. We don't cleanse ourselves just by unburdening ourselves because David shouldn't just get to do that and move on with his life. There should be a consequence. But what does cleanse us is the costly blood of Jesus. He took the punishment that should have been David's. Now, there's going to be a consequence to David's life, just like there will be to ours, but the punishment that we should have fell on him. And that's why the blood of Jesus is what cleanses us when we repent of our sins. Make no mistake, our confession is important, but our confession isn't what cleanses us. It's the blood of Jesus only. And that's why true repentance always remembers the high cost of forgiveness. It never asks for it cheaply, and it never receives it ungratefully. Let me give you one last thing here. True repentance asks for transformation. So it must first confess its sin and ask for cleansing, but then it it goes one step further. It asks for real change to take place. Look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, David didn't just confess his act of sin, but he confessed his sinfulness or his sinful nature. He's saying that I was sinful even before I did this act of sin. It's in my nature. There is a fundamental corruption in my spirit so that if I am left unchanged, I know that I will sin again. That's why cleansing alone is not enough. How many times have you been forgiven and released by God, cleansed of the same habitual sinful act, only to find that you're right back doing it again? It's like paying off the debt of an inveterate gambler. He'll be effusively thanking you today and right back in the casino tomorrow. That's our human nature. That while we celebrate the relief of being forgiven, there's something corrupt in our nature our sinful nature, so that left unchanged, we will do it again. It's inevitable. So David says, don't just confess that you've done something sinful. Confess that you yourself are sinful. That there is this proneness in you to love what is wrong. I find that in me all the time. And I think if we're honest, we'll all find it in ourselves. And so look at the famous line in this psalm, this one made famous by a very familiar praise song. Look at verse 10, and it says, and you can see that the the writers of that praise song just lifted their lyrics right out of Scripture. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Did you see what David said here? See, he's already asked for cleansing, and he's not just asking that God would clean his stained heart. He says, create in me a clean heart. Because he recognizes, like we should, that cleansing is not enough. We also need to be changed, to have a new heart created by God in us. Because if that heart doesn't change, if it's not transformed, we will do that thing again and again and again. Until maybe we're so filled with defeat or self-loathing, we stop caring about what we're doing. And we give up and surrender. And so David asks that his old heart, his corrupt heart, would be replaced, created afresh into a new, clean, pure, and holy heart. One that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. He also says, rebuild in me a spirit that is right. That word right spirit refers to a spirit that is established and firm and unwavering and loyal to God. A spirit that isn't so uh, wishy-washy about the matter, but that we will develop in ourselves as God works on us. He will create in us a new heart and a new spirit. See, true repentance is not transactional, it's transformational. Real repentance doesn't just hop from one bad episode to the next, but it's a way of approaching God that admits, I am a sinful person, and I need God consistently to change who I am at the core, to create in me a new heart to replace the corrupt heart that keeps sinning over and over. And you'll remember from last Sunday's Easter message that this is the great news of the gospel. And this is the good news that the Apostle Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. A new creation. Remember that what Jesus is doing all the time, his very work is to create in us a new nature, a new spirit, and a new heart. This is the good news, that we, we not only ask God desperately for it, but that's precisely the work that He's up to all the time in our lives. Let me finish this way. Verses 11 to 12 says, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. The happy result of true repentance is that our intimacy and joy with God is restored. You know, when we're in a conflict with someone we love, one of the most painful parts of it is that we could be in the same room with that person and just be miles apart in our hearts. It's a cold, lifeless place. And it really hurts. But when restoration comes, when we're reconciled with that person, it's like the sun rises again. We feel its warmth and its light. There's this wonderful joy after conflict when reconciliation happens where it just feels so good to be connected to that person again. To see them smile at us with genuine warmth. And that's the picture in that phrase, return to me the joy of my salvation. Verse 17 says, 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. You know, last week we saw that the resurrection of Jesus makes possible for you and me freedom from death and a freedom for life. I hope you found that a compelling picture of the kind of full, rich life that God makes possible for us through Christ. But remember this, we can't lay hold of that life just because we want it. That life is available to us as we lower ourselves before God in humility and in repentance. The only thing we have to contribute to this wonderful, full, new life is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. What that means is that we don't approach God from a position of strength, from a position of making demands or claiming rights, but we say, God, I know who I am and I know who you are. And when I approach you, I always approach in a posture of humility. For I am a sinful person and you are a holy God. And apart from repentance, true repentance, we cannot lay hold of that life which God is holding out to us with such a desire that we live that life with Him. Sin creates distance in any relationship, and it especially creates distance in our relationship with God. When our faith feels cold and God feels far away, very often it's because there is sin that has never been dealt with, and we have been defiant and self-justifying rather than repentant. But if we will learn to humble ourselves and repent of our sins and of our sinfulness, then God will meet us where we are with His unfailing, steadfast, everlasting Hesed love. He will restore to us the joy of our salvation and He will bring us back into His presence and the warmth of intimacy that that brings with it. As I wrap up, I just want to ask you to be careful how you hear this word today. Because it's really easy to hear this on behalf of others, to think about how people today need to repent more, or how this person I know really needs to hear this and repent. But repentance is a deeply personal matter. And so I ask you this morning not to hear this sermon on behalf of someone else who needs it. But hear it for yourself. In just a moment, our praise team is going to come and lead us in a final song. And as they do, let that song become like a prayer for you. Let this time of singing, or of just letting the song minister to you, be God's invitation for you to come before Him in a posture of repentance. Reflecting on your sin and your sinfulness and how true repentance will allow us to receive the full benefit of everything which God has done for us through Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite the praise team to lead us in that song, and I'll come back afterwards to give you a final word of blessing and benediction. Would you join me to receive 
the blessing, the benediction of God. Harvest, always know that it's safe to be vulnerable and repentant before our God. Because our God loves you and He loves me with a hesed love, an unfailing, everlasting, unconditional, and steadfast love. He will never meet your repentance with rejection. We can be confident in this, that when we acknowledge and confess our sin, without fail, on every instance, He will meet you with kindness and forgiveness and grace. And when we cast ourselves low, He will lift us up with His hand of mercy. This is our confidence because this is our God. Harvest, it is my prayer for us that we will never become a self-justifying, defiant church, but that repentance will always mark our hearts and that because we have repented, we will lay hold together of the full, new, rich life which God intends for us. May this be our blessing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to thank you for worshiping with us this morning, and we look forward to being together again next Sunday. If you would, wherever you are, if you're alone or with your family, and you'd like to have a time of reflection or discussion immediately following this, we're going to flash up a slide with some prompts for you to do just that. And until next Sunday, have a blessed week, be safe, and continue to pursue after God. God bless you. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.